Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Art. My name is Gonzalo Herrero. I'm Architecture Program Curator here at the RA. It's a real pleasure to welcome you to this evening discussion, which is the second one as part of our series, Home Sweet Home, in which we are examining the meaning of contemporary domesticity and exploring our relationship with the home. This evening, uh, we have three wonderful speakers, um, a wonderful chair as well, and that will be exploring how mass media has shaped our understanding of an ideal home, and also our aspirations uh, for our domestic interiors. Uh, the, pre the three presentations will be followed by a discussion uh, chaired uh, by Penny Spark, and also by some time for questions from the audience. Now it's a real delight to welcome back uh, to our chair, Penny Spark. Um, Penny Park is Pro Vice Chancellor for Research and Enterprise, Professor of Design, History, and the Director of the Modern Interior Research Center at Kingston University. She has taught history and design for over 45 years at uh, different universities, including Brighton Polytechnic and the RCA, as well at the uh, Kingston University, of course. She has published over a dozen books and numerous essays and articles in the field of design history over the last 30 years, with an emphasis since the mid-90s on the relationship between design, gender, and interior. Her more recent books include As Long As It's Pink, The Sexual Politics of Taste, and uh, Introduction to Design and Culture, 1900 uh, to the Present, and The Modern Interior. Um, before handing over uh, to Penny, um, so she can introduce our first speaker, as a quick note to thank to our sponsors tonight, uh, uh, the architecture program supporters, uh, the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture and Tarka Ceramics. And now without further delay, please give a warm welcome to Penny's Park. Thank you very much, very nice introduction. Makes me feel incredibly old. <laughs> um, I'm going to say a little bit of repetition really, just because um, we want to make sure everybody understands what we're doing this evening. So I'm very pleased to welcome you all here this evening. Um, and as we know, we're here as part of Home Sweet Home, but specifically domestic desires. Let me say a little bit about what we mean by that to, to contextualize the, the three talks you're going to hear. Um, magazines, trade shows, advertising, and television, and new media have shaped our understanding of an ideal home. That's the kind of premise that we're starting with today. They both influence and are formulated by what domesticity means at a particular moment. So that's what we're going to explore. What we're going to do is take a closer look at the changes that characterise representations of the home throughout the 20th century and investigate the effects that these have on our understanding of domesticity today, amongst other things. I mean, I'm just giving you a little sort of intro. And in particular, um, and I'm sure it's something we'll talk about at the end, how is new media influencing our understanding of domesticity? That's a really big question. And is there a significant difference to times past, or are we simply dealing with the addition of a new medium? So that, that's the sort of thrust of it, although there's much, much more to come. And as we've heard already, we've got three um, impressive speakers today who are going to share their thoughts with you. Um, and the format, again, you've heard, but let me just repeat it so that you know. Um, I'm going to introduce each speaker one by one. They're going to come up and talk for probably 10 to 15 minutes. Um, when they've finished, we'll have a little discussion up here. I'll, I'll ask them some questions and get a discussion going um, around uh, the themes that have arisen from their talks. And then when we've done that, we'll open the floor for questions, and there'll be plenty of time to take quite a few of them, hopefully. And we're aiming to finish by about 8.45, after which we'll invite you to a, um, a wine reception. So that, that's the format. 
Um, so let's move on swiftly. My first speaker is Deborah Sagarayan. Um, Deborah is Professor of Design History and Theory and Associate Dean Research in the Faculty of Creative and Cultural Industries at the University of Portsmouth. Her research interests include the past, present and future of the kitchen, and she's developing a research project on vintage brands, markets, events and subcultures, amongst other things. I know she's always working on many projects. She's also, importantly for tonight, the author of Ideal Homes, 1918 to 1939, Domestic Design and Suburban Modernism. And she's published several articles on the invention of historical pageants and spectacles. So she's very broad-ranging in her interest. But tonight, she's going to speak to you about the role of the Ideal Home Exhibition in defining domestic design through the 20th century. Thank you, Deborah. So I kept this very informal, and what I'm going to do is talk <laughs> to my images. But before I start, I wanted to do a bit of a, a, a survey of the audience. Can you put your hand up if you've actually been to the Ideal Home Exhibition? So a few, a few of you. So, so, so most people have heard of the Ideal Home Exhibition. Some of you have seen what it's like. But what I'm going to do is, is locate it as a very specific form of representation. So the Ideal Home Exhibition was founded by the Daily Mail in 1908, and it still exists. It is the longest continuously running commercial exhibition in the world. There is no exhibition that has this continuous history. The year of its founding is really interesting. It was founded in the same year as the Franco-British exhibition, which came on, on the tailcoats of the big tradition of international exhibition and world's fairs, which started with the Great Exhibition in Hyde Park. So it's really important that the Ideal Home Exhibition emerged at this time when the culture of exhibitions was really well established, where the public understood what exhibitions were and where a language of exhibitions had emerged and the public understood what it was to go to an exhibition. Now, this is a very different exhibition experience to the experience of the art gallery or the museum. And the very important things about the international exhibitions and world's fairs, from my point of view, is that they're this extraordinary mixture of education and entertainment. And I would argue, until quite recently, historians had really underplayed the entertainment idea of the, the tradition of, of international exhibitions and world's fairs. Now, at this point in 1908, there was also a very vibrant tradition of commercial exhibitions and trade fairs. So you had the British Industries Fair, which was already going, the motor, the motor show had emerged, and you had a whole load of different trade exhibitions for different trades, things like um, the rubber industry. And in actual fact, when the Ideal Home Exhibition was announced in 1908, the Daily Mail had, had a big splash in the newspaper with a whole list of exhibitions that were happening that year. And it jumbled <laughs> up all the trade exhibitions with the Franco-British exhibition and a whole load of other exhibitions as well. So the exhibition form is, is really important. Um, and at its peak in the 50s, the exhibition attracted one and a half million visitors in three weeks. 
at, at Olympia. You know, this, this is a figure that a museum could only imagine. It, it, it's quite extraordinary. So, so to think about why was the Daily Mail interested in exhibitions? Well, it, it, this, earlier in the year, it had exhibited at the Franco-British exhibition. It had a pavilion where it set up a printing press and it, and it had the mail rolling off on the print, printing press. And the person behind the Ideal Home exhibition was a man called Thomas Wareham Smith. I re recently wrote an entry for the DMB on him. Really amazing pioneer of newspaper publicity absolutely changed the face of advertising in newspapers. And this is, this is a, a quote from um, Wareham Smith. And, and, he, and what he's saying is that why he set the Ideal Home Exhibition up was nothing to do with setting up a visitor attraction to the public. What he wanted to do was attract advertisers who didn't usually advertise in the Daily Mail to take stands in the exhibition and they would then buy advertising space in the mail. And one of the things that he did, which you saw on the slide previously, was he started putting adverts on the front page of the mail, which was, which was very revolutionary <coughs> in the time. And, and then he also saw it, the exhibition having a wider value in giving the Daily Mail publicity. So it was nothing to do with the home. It was nothing to do with ideals. It was simply that he saw that this was a market that the, that the um, mail hadn't reached and that, that, that the kinds of companies who produce goods for the home weren't advertising in the popular press. Now, slightly to his surprise and his team's surprise, the Ideal Home Exhibition became a runaway success and was really well attended. And there were, there were lots of um, coverage of it in the press, not just in the Mail, but in other papers like The Mirror and The Times and in women's magazines. And so the exhibition became this huge success. Lord Northcliffe, who was proprietor of The Mail, wasn't very keen on it because he thought it was a bit down market, they were trying to aim the mail at this kind of middle market, this kind of aspiring um, lower middle class. So, so that was, so there were some interesting tensions around it. So that's what that's where it originates, and this is one of the earliest photographs of the exhibition behind my text. And I think what when we think of exhibitions, we have to think about what's very specific um, with. Uh, of the, the kind of language and technology of exhibitions and think about the space of the exhibition and what, what it's like to be in the exhibition. So the idea of spectacle is really useful to thinking about the exhibition. But I think I really differ from, from the, the kind of situation notion of, of spectacle as a displacement of lived experience, because my interest in spectacle is spectacle as a lived experience. And this also comes through in my work on historical pageants as well. So I'm really interested in the ways in which the public interact in the spaces of the exhibition, the ways in which they interact with the stands, with the people on the stands, and the way in which they traverse the exhibition and appropriate it and make the space their own. But it also becomes this, this space that in lots of ways is intensely familiar, 
but in other ways can be a fantasy. And the exhibition experimented a lot with design over the years. Now, I very purposely haven't put in a slide of Alison Peter Smithson's House of the Future, the best-known exhibit from the exhibition, the one that's been appropriated into kind of histories of architecture and design. But this is what the exhibition looked like the same year that the Smithsons showed their futuristic house. This is James Gardner, very well-known exhibition designer, worked on the Festival of Britain and, and lots of um, things like the, the Brussels um, 58 Expo Pavilion. This was his overarching design for the exhibition that year. And this nicely plate starts to set the scene for one of the, the really strong themes of the exhibition, which is a tension between tradition and modernity. And that tension is, is always there throughout the exhibition. So. And, I, and I, so, so one of the things that's always intrigued me is thinking about what is the exhibition about? What does an exhibition do that going to the shops doesn't do? How is going to the exhibition different to, to an experience of shopping? That, that's always really intrigued me. Does something different go on? What's the exhibition for? Those of you who have been to the Ideal Home Exhibition will know that that there's not usually very much actually for sale, but there's lots of free samples. And the other thing there is, is there's, there is um, an opportunity to interact with the exhibits. And this seems to be one of the kind of very um, crucial things about this exhibition, is the opportunity to imagine yourself in these different spaces. And so I've, I've got a couple of quotes here about people writing about exhibition design. Lawrence Weaver, who designed the British Empire exhibition, saying that the main commercial aim of a great exhibition should be publicity rather than sales, to make converts to the consumption of articles rather than to attract buyers. And I think this is a really insightful quote, this idea that you, that you become a convert to the brand, you become a convert to the, the product. So the idea that an, an ex exhibition is an advertisement in three dimensions of a company's product or service, I think is really interesting. And you can see here, this, this is um, the, the Women's Institute House from 1951, and these are some visitors um, from a WI party having a look at these newfangled square saucepans and really getting in there and kind of examining them. And this leads me on to, to one of the strong themes of the exhibition, is the idea of <coughs> something be, being demonstrated and the idea of the new, the idea of technology, but also this idea of female expertise in the domestic as well. So that's a very strong theme of the exhibition. But that also goes um, along with um, the growth of, of home ownership and educating a new lower middle class of homeowners. And then you, you get exhibits um, that in which women are very invested in the exhibition. So that this particular example here is one of, one, of, one of the most interesting in the exhibition's history. This is the WI House from 1951, designed by a questionnaire of 400,000 members of women's institutes that that's, was initiated in the war. And um, in, this, is, this is a kind of interesting reflection of domestic desires, but also traditional crafts. And one of the things that's fascinating about this house is the exterior of the house was reinterpreted 
by um, Lionel Brett, Lord Isha, the architect in the Scandinavian style, but the interior is much more traditional. And then, and then the, other, the, the other tension, I guess, that comes through in the exhibition is about the past and the future. And the future is a really strong theme in the exhibition. And, and one of the things that I'm very interested in, in is this idea of what was it in the exhibition that was thought of as modern by the general public. And I think this is, this is something that I think really... Um, in some ways is in opposition to some of our um, ideas of good design and the modern through the histories of design and architecture. So think, thinking about the modern from lots of different aspects. So this is, this is the 1928 House of the Future, um, kind of designed in, in the international style, but once you start reading about it, you discover that it was projected in multiple colors to express different moods and that it's a very different interpretation of the modern. And then an another example here of a different modernism, in the center here is a, a, a result of another competition of a house designed by women. This is the house that Jill built from 1931, designed in what was called in the press in the time, the efficiency style. So this again is another version of the modern. And so, so these, these kind of different versions of home, these different versions of the modern, can sit side by side throughout the exhibition's history, and they're a very strong feature of it. And then thinking about where the ideal home exhibition has got to now, um, it really um, looked like it might close altogether when it was coming up towards its centenary in 2008. And the brand was rescued by Media 10, who are digital events and um, digital design and media and events company. They also own Grand Designs Live, 100% Design, Clerkenwell Design Week. But the exhibition industry thought the exhibition was dead when Media 10 bought it. Um, people were quite surprised in the industry that they were interested in it. And they have really reversed the decline in visitor numbers. It's been really interesting seeing what they've done. One of the things they've done is they've gone back to the founding principles of the exhibition and revived some of the key features. They've also had to return to Olympia because Old Court Exhibition Centre, of course, was demolished. And they've expanded the exhibition in different parts of the country. So it now happens in Manchester and in Scotland. And um, in December will be the first Ideal Home Show China in Shanghai. And visitor numbers are looking very healthy. Um, altogether about 420,000 this year. So not the heights of the 50s, but certainly looking pretty healthy. And one of the things that really intrigues me is why do people st still come to this exhibition? In, in a world of um, digital media, immersive experiences, travel, television, film, why do people still come to the exhibition? It was something the exhibition was very worried about in the past. At one point, they went off to, to take a trip to Disneyland to see if they could learn some things from there. They have got a strong um, social media presence. But I think there's something about 
the spectacle of the exhibition, um, people being present to each other in the exhibition that, that makes the exhibition continue to be a success. And it is really intriguing. You could visit a new development and queue to go and see a show home every weekend of the year, but people still come to the exhibition to do that. And the queues are extremely <coughs> long when, when you see the queues in the exhibition. So there's, there's something really interesting about this. And when I was looking for images of this year's exhibition earlier today, I found something written by one of the exhibitors online who said, it's because we live in this digital virtual world that people are drawn to the exhibition to see the tangible and the real. So I thought this was really interesting, that rather than be something that kills the exhibition off, maybe that's one of the things that's going to be to give life to the exhibition. So I hope that sets a scene about what the ideal home exhibition is. Thank you very much indeed, Deborah. That gives us a great start. And I think the question you raise at the end is one we're going to most definitely return to. Okay, I'm now going to introduce Emily. Emily Rees is a final PhD, PhD candidate at the University of Nottingham. The central question of her thesis is how television was domesticated in Britain. And the time frame of her thesis encompasses the beginning of the regular television service in 36, television's arrival in the home in the post-war period, the mass proliferation of television in the 50s and 60s, and then coming up to the arrival of colour television in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, Emily has a forthcoming publication in the Journal of Popular Television, and tonight she's going to speak about the importance of television in, in forming domestic space, both as an object of design in its own right and through the shows that it depicts. Thank you, Emily, very much. The television set is one of the most ubiquitous household objects in Britain. It tends to be a bit of a surprise if we find a home that doesn't have a TV set. And even as we're led to believe that the television set will be surpassed by younger, more portable screens, the majority of us still sit, evening after evening, staring at the box in the corner. My research is aiming to draw our attention to that box considering how this technological object made its way into our domestic lives. This talk will only offer a short overview of television's relationship with domesticity by looking at television's connection to design in the home, examining how television became embedded in domestic design practices from the late 1940s onwards. To guide us through this exploration, I'd like to utilize my grandma's television. So, on the left, that's um, a picture, well, it's an advert for the television set that my granny had when I was growing up in the 1990s. We've got an image here of, an, of a later television set of my granny that came after this one. But the reason I'm showing this picture is because my granny always had ornaments that lived on top of her television set. Um, this is Christmas time, so in fact, the, the manger scene gets, gets a special seasonal placement on top of the television set, but my favorite has always been the carousel that's actually been shifted to one side to make way for the Christmas decorations. Um, so, why am I talking about my grandma's television set? When I was a child, this was the only television set like this that I'd ever seen. It lived like a relic from a bygone era in a house that was itself, in many ways, a monument to a certain vision of architecture and design. 
The house my grandma lived in was in many ways a typifying example of the kinds of open plan homes built in suburbs across the country in the 1950s and 60s. The through living dining room with large glass windows opening out to the street on one side and the garden on the other was the exemplar of a new modern way of life which was expressed through design. This television stood, set stood out for me as a child because it was really unfamiliar and therefore I thought it was a bit of a novelty. When I was a child, televisions were made from plastic. They were usually gray or black and they certainly did not have a door. So this is the door that pulls across for when the set's not in use. Um, so this television set from the 1970s, for me as a child, looked really old fashioned, more akin to a curiosity. Its meaning as a designed object had changed. Altered by changing taste and technological advances, it was no longer the sleek, modern designer set it had been when it was bought. Therefore, it conferred onto the living space in which it was situated a look of the past, along with the other outdated objects and furniture that made up the room. So in order to understand how this television set would have redefined domestic space when it was bought in the late 1960s or early 1970s, we have to appreciate its meaning as a designed object. In the late 1960s, a Bang & Olufsen colour television was a luxurious object, embodying the latest technological update to the most modern of media. Initially, all colour television sets were really expensive, but the Bang & Olufsen set were marketed as the pinnacle of luxury color receivers for only the most discerning of consumers. The advert, which is pictured up there, says, our products are made for people who like to own better things, and Beovision color is simply the best you can buy. Furthermore, the addition of a sliding wooden door made the set even more luxurious. Doors required more wood so they cost more money. A door did not so much represent a means to hide the television as a means to show off the cost of the set. Television consumers were constantly being offered television sets that were in good taste. Another advert for Murphy stated, smart people don't watch television, here's what they don't watch it on. The advert is playing with the idea that television has a low cultural value, telling consumers that the design of the television set could actually offset some of the less favourable connotations of television as a medium. The concept that the television set was a designer object which should look good when it is off and adorn the home rather than simply provide a service was an idea that we can trace back to the late 1940s and 50s. The Council of Industrial Design, which was set up in 1944 to instruct the British public about good design practices, was frequently dismayed by the tasteless television sets they saw on sale at places like the <laughs> Ideal Home Exhibition. Uh, sets with opulent trimmings, Queen Anne embellishments and shiny veneers were deemed to be tasteless contrivances which pandered to the lowest common denominator, according to the Council of Industrial Design this is. The council, therefore, sought to promote sets that were considered to be well-designed. These were normally sets that had been designed by established furniture designers, such as Robin Day for Pi and Eric Marshall for Ultra. So the example on the left is the Eric Marshall set for Ultra, and this is the Robin Day set for Pi. 
The secret to a well-designed television set, the council argued, was that it should not seek to be anything else. A television set was a highly technical instrument which should be emphasized in how it looks. In other words, form should follow function. These contemporary television receivers were designed to fit in with the modern open plan home which was deemed to be the acceptable model for home decor in the post-war period. The Pi advert which is pictured reads, Pi TV for the contemporary home. And it actually won the council's design of the year award in 1957. But television did not only reshape the design of domesticity in its physical presence in the home, but also in its ability to trans transmit information into the home. The Council of Industrial Design were quick to see the advantages of this new medium for disseminating good design practices, and they actually teamed up with the BBC. Stage sets were often designed to meet the specificities of the Council's ideals about design and the home. The BBC even produced a television programme from the Council of Industrial Design's exhibition on how to view television correctly. <coughs> The transcript for the programme is sadly all that remains, but at one stage the pre presenter states that there is a right way and a wrong way to view television. Indeed, from the late 1940s onwards, there were several sources which householders could consult in order to learn how to display their television set, from design council exhibitions to articles in lifestyle magazines. As research by the likes of Judy Atfield and Penny Spark has already shown, this narrative was characterized by its didactic tone. Mostly male, middle-class designers told the public what their home should look like and the products they should buy to achieve this. Much of this revolved around rejecting the cluttered Victorian aesthetic for a streamlined contemporary look in which the television could function as a centerpiece with its symbolic resonance of progress and connectivity. So here we have a few exam examples from Lifestyle magazines which show these before and after pictures from the Victorian to, to the modern. So to a degree, my granny's living room was a timepiece for this new form of domesticity championed in the 1950s. It was light, open, with television at its heart. But there were small acts of rebellion too, which would have met the bad design criteria of the Council of Industrial Design. The net curtains on the front window to maintain some privacy from the street, the chintzy ornaments on the television set, the doilies on the back of the sofa. These small acts of design defiance against the modernist creed, design scholars have frequently pointed out, constitute the multifaceted way in which modernity was enacted in the home. By using the television set as a space to store ornaments turns the space on top of the set into something sentimental. This used the television set as something beyond its function, turning its physical presence into something more than a media object, but as a site for precious objects. In the modernist ideal home, however, there was little room for sentimentality. The home was, as Le Corbusier's creed stated, a machine for living in. Householders were encouraged to make their living space as flexible as possible to accommodate television. Televisions were placed on revolving platforms to allow it to be watched in multiple spaces. It was placed in shelving that acted as space-saving room dividers. Televisions were hung from ropes to save space, 
or put on wheels so it could be easily put in place for a viewing session. Furniture was adapted for viewing, fold-away tables for television snacks, chairs that split apart to adapt to different sized television audiences, television lights to provide the perfect lighting, and I even found an example of television crockery. <laughs> in this way, we can see that a domestic material culture developed alongside television, designed to improve viewing practices. Not only this, this new material culture was deeply embedded in the burgeoning consumer culture of the 1950s and 60s. As consumer culture became increasingly focused on the individual and their own personal expression of taste, the pres prescriptive message of the Council of Industrial Design became increasingly obsolete, and the model of good contemporary design gave way to an individualized yet mass-produced mode of <coughs> consumption. That's just one more on that. The fusion of eras, styles, and design statements present in my granny's living room, symbolized by the ornaments on top of her television, is in many ways characteristic of the postmodern design in the home. As Tim Putnam has put it, home becomes the supreme domain for personalization and therefore endless negotiations. I'd like to end with an advert which appeared in last month's Observer magazine for a Samsung television that is, to quote the advert, TV when it's on, art when it's off. This confused design scenario in which a television set comes disguised as a piece of art suggests to me that television's negotiation into domesticity is not quite yet complete. Thank you, Emily. That was fascinating. And it, yes, I like the way you, you dealt with it as an object, creating space around it and the contents around it as well. We'll come back to all those issues in, uh, afterwards as well. Um, the final presentation, um, Deborah Chambers. Delighted she's here. She's a professor of media and cultural studies at Newcastle University, and her research expertise lies in two areas. The first encompasses media technologies and media cultures. And the second lies in journalism studies with a focus on women and journalism, local media and journalism within a global context. But that, those two things come together very clearly. She's written eight books, the most recent of which is Changing Media. Hope, well, it might not be the most recent. You, you can correct me if it isn't. Um, uh, Changing Media, Hope is the most relevant for today, I think. Changing Media, Homes and Households, Cultures, Technologies and Meanings. That was published by Routledge in 2016. And tonight she's going to speak about how social media are used to define domestic space and how it has changed and affected our interactions with it. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you very much. Well, it's a privilege to be here, so thank you very much for inviting me, Helen. Um, yes, um, the first two presentations relate to what I'm going to talk about, even though what I'm going to talk about is actually the role of social media and um, the impact that that has had on our ideas um, of home. I mean, the focus for me is on the impact of today's digital media on the home, um, but this kind of media impact is twofold. Um, we have media representations of home, images of home in television dramas, films, magazines, design and ideal home exhibitions. And, and now, social media such as Pinternet, Instagram and Facebook. And then secondly, we have the entrance of media technologies 
in the home. So the technologies themselves that have come into the home, and that's what Emily's been talking about, um, from radio and television to mobile gadgets like flat screen uh, TVs, tablets, and now smart homes and the Internet of Things. I've written about that side of things, the second one, um, but what I haven't explored until today, so guys, help me out here if um, there's something much more interesting and pressing that I haven't thought about um, that needs to be discussed. But today, I want to talk about this kind of special role of social media today um, in our ideas of the um, interior and interior design. So addressing these two forms, but I have to say I wouldn't mind if I've got time at the end talking a little bit about the smart home or the home of the future or the connected home, whatever we call it today, because there's a very interesting gender distinction that goes on there, which would be interesting um, to explore. So there's a direct link, as we've established, I think, in the previous talks, between magazines, home exhibitions, and trade fairs, and radio, television programs, particularly in the post-war period. And then today, today's countless Instagram and, and Pinterest images of domestic interiors. And these all play a kind of pedagogical role in defining the meanings and the parameters of good taste associated with home today. And what's fascinating is that we just cannot stop ourselves from having a look at what other people are doing within the home. So there is this extraordinary kind of porous nature to today's home. We have never had such a public home than we have had today. Nevertheless, what's become clear from Deborah's talk and from Emily's talk is that this home has been on display ever since um, the post-war period. It's just increasingly so now that we've got um, Pinterest and Instagram and so on. So the links that I want to make is that here you have a group of tastemakers in the special issue of House and Garden, which includes features on Sir Gordon Russell, Colin St. John Wilson, and Shirley Conran. And these are past cultural intermediaries, which we can, borrowing from Pierre Bourdieu in his um, seminal piece on distinctions, um, we can call cultural intermediaries, they are kind of like tastemakers, designers, and trade fairs, and popular media, television, magazines, and so on. So there's a cluster of media representations of the home, and within that we have uh, a series of tastemakers that rise to become the guys that tell us what is correct and incorrect within the home. These tastemakers obviously include, uh, as Emily was saying, the Council of Industrial Design just after the Second World War, who had very distinctive ideas about what good design constituted, so much so that it was actually very much a moral issue, as Penny herself has talked about within her uh, work. Now, um, Recent research that I've uh, done on these, what we might call cultural intermediaries, um, has focused on things like the Festival of Britain and the Ideal Home Exhibition to see where the television was positioned in the home. And it's quite clear that these festivals, these exhibitions, performed this pedagogical role, this role of educating us into how to use these largely, kind of at the time, alien um, technologies and how to bring them into the the home and domesticate them. So these 
were very important exhibitions that gave us clues about how to bring the technology into the home. And then in the 1980s, sort of 70s and 80s, when Margaret Thatcher came into power and the dream of home ownership became a, a, a major political issue on, on her political agenda, we gradually had the rise of tastemakers who were actually talking to us through television itself. So the television set had become domesticated, it had entered into the home, and now these tastemakers were from the television set within the living room explaining to us how to decorate that home. And that's continued ever since to this day. The boom, I suppose, you know, sort of rose from the, the 1990s. So we've got that whole period from the 1990s to the present day when television programs intermingled with magazines, intermingled with um, all sorts of other popular cultural forms to explain to us, to educate us, how to uh, design the interior of our home. And then comes along the internet, and what we have now today is Instagram, Pinterest, and so on, that actually explains to us how to negotiate uh, the meanings of home once again. So the London Design Festival, which took place recently, um, was advertised by saying, before the internet, we used to rely on tear-outs from magazines and the IKEA catalogue to get inspiration for our homes. But now, a quick swipe on your smartphone can unleash a world of interior designers and homeowners with excellent taste, who can inspire you to mix, match, match and DIY your, your way to your dream home. And what better time to spruce up your Insta follow lists than at the start of uh, London Design Festival. Whether you like your interiors to err on the side of minimal, prefer your space to be cosy and cluttered, or like your pad to be peppered with plants, these are the Instagram accounts that will have you double tapping on your commute home. So this demonstrates the shift that's taking place. But it also refers to IKEA. So there was that moment when IKEA emerged. Gosh, what was the year when IKEA kind of hit this country? 30 years ago. So IKEA and the IKEA catalogue was the thing that you used to go to and that you used to um, get inspiration from. And it was referred to as a kind of democratization of design, of design for today, because all of us were able to engage in that kind of um, activity of redesigning our interior and today through what we call um, hack design as well. Then comes along Pinternet, Pinterest, <laughs> I keep calling it Pinternet, and everything changes once again. But nevertheless, IKEA is, is still right up there as a major issue, as a major phenomenon, because you can mix and match, and it's being done through not just IKEA, but through uh, your mobile phone and your, your Pinterest um, activities. So one of the things that I looked up was um, online this week was, you know, who were regarded as the top five um, bloggers in, in relation to telling us how our home should be constructed. And what's fascinating is that design blogs are kind of intersecting with uh, Pinterest and Instagram and uh, this whole kind of recommendation culture 
which is part of the algorithms, what we might call an algorithmic recommendation culture, in which we are being sold a particular kind of set of styles, but we ourselves are allowed to engage through um, agency and through this idea that um, we ourselves have got control um, through our own pinnings and so on. So what we have here is Mad About the House, which is an interior design blog, the source book for modern living, one of the top blog interior design um, uh, blogs. Uh, brilliant idea for A, Lux, B, bouncing light around the space and making it feel larger. It works be beautifully with the dark gray, blah de blah de blah and here you've got several kinds of images which you can then, you know, sort of, most of them are on Pinterest, so you can pin them to your Pinterest board. Abigail uh, Arnhem is another one. My Guide to Decorex 2017. Abigail Arnhem, uh, she, she says, I am super excited to tell you guys about my new collaboration with Wayfair. So Wayfair has now arisen um, not to take the place of IKEA, but is up there doing exactly, performing exactly the same kind of role as IKEA, mixing up my moody palette with an earthy twist for a look that is unique yet affordable. And what you can see here is a very informal kind of um, mode of address to us. Very informally, this is an informal era that we've entered. This is not the Council of Industrial Design era where we're told how to uh, engage with uh, design. This is an era where we can mix and match and do what we like ourselves. This is an era where we have a sense of agency and um, we have a sense of control, a sense of autonomy in the construction of our own interiors. <coughs> Swoonworthy is another blog. Glam Halloween decor you can use all year round. You start to see here a theme emerging which is, which is um, kind of like a still life, the, the sort of still life image of your home. The clutter is all kind of stuck beyond the frame. Then there's the Fresh Design blog, Modern and Contemporary Home Interior Design blog. Fresh Design blog, six steps to choosing the right bed, sofa bed. A sofa bed is one of those awkward hybrid furniture items that's easy to get wrong. What do you do first? Choose a sofa design you love. Go for the best build quality you can afford. Pick a smooth operating mechanism. Test for excellent levels of comfort. Check the mattress for quality. Don't forget to measure up. And then if you go down to IKEA today, you may be in for a surprise. What's fascinating here is the still life image, like a work of art, is IKEA. IKEA has become like a work of art if you manipulate your images appropriately. Still life images. Uh, journalist Kate Watson-Smythe is at the helm of this Instagram account which guides you through how to decorate a space with interesting and unusual items. Um, expect snaps from inside her home as well as curated visuals of beautiful rooms. What's fascinating about these blogs and these images end up on Pinterest and so on and Instagram is that these bloggers are experts they're tastemakers, and yet at the same time, very informal, and at the same time, it's about them themselves. These people are showing you not just their own interiors, but their own personalities. So this is the era of the personality designer. It's still the expert, but you can pin all of these things to your Pinterest board. 
So on your Pinterest board, what you pin is all of these beautiful images that have been curated from elsewhere. So the Pinterest person, the person who has entered the Pinterest world, doesn't have to create these images themselves. They curate them. These are collected from elsewhere and you pin them on your board, but it becomes an expression of you yourself. Nevertheless, my argument is that the, the, the expert designer is still very present there because we're not being, through the algorithms, through the architecture of Pinterest, we're not being invited to create our own designs. We're being invited to collect them and to then to, to mix them and match them. But these designs are originating from professional expert designers. So although the, this is the world of Instagram and Pinterest, it's also the world of the expert designer, the tastemaker, is still very much uh, there with us shaping our um, ideas. So just for a couple of seconds towards the end, I just thought I'd run you through some images of the luxury homes of the future, because it seems to me that when you look at this idea of technology entering the home today, from the original early wooden television set, to today's flat screen TV and you know um, uh, tablets and so on, we've entered another kind of dimension, another discourse, which is profoundly masculine. So the Pinterest and the blog um, of interior design is very feminine, and Pinterest itself has got extremely feminine sort of um, you know um, categories, uh, such as interior design, such as recipes and cooking and so on. This era, this uh, material, the smart home technology, which dates way before uh, the introduction of television, is a profoundly masculine discourse. Definition of today's smart home and visualizing the smart screen. A residence, the smart home is a residence equipped with computing and information technology which anticipates and responds to the needs of the occupants, working to promote their comfort, convenience, security and entertainment through the management of technology within the home and connections to the world beyond. And if you look at some of the um, stuff online, a tour of Microsoft's home of the future, this is in 2011, years ago now, what we've got is screens all over the place. Screens right across, across the bedroom wall as well. This idea that um, television has disappeared, but it's still a screened home. Google has introduced a new home control center that features artificial intelligence and advanced Internet of Things smart home capabilities. Uh, Google Home stands. 142.8 millimeters tall and is really cute and everyone feels comfortable about having in, him in our home. Um, this is the voice activated um, you know, um, uh, information thing. Um, but these people uh, who are the chief executives of the multinational corporations, they are, these are the tastemakers of the future uh, and they're superstars. A bit like the superstars of, of um, you know, of the blogs, the superstars of um, television um, makeover um, improvement programs. These are the superstars of the future. Amazon Echo with a cloud-connected voice-activated Alexa. Uh, the focus is on the family within this kind of imagery, but it's still very much a kind of masculine uh, discourse. And then, of course, more recently, we've got the Microsoft HoloLens, another whole new reality.
I'll end there. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. That's brought us up to the present and into the future and raised a lot of very, very, very interesting questions along the way. What we're going to do now is that I'm going to ask the three speakers to come and sit on stage, and the four of us are going to sit here and have a little private conversation that you may listen to. <laughs> well, we'll start a conversation, then we'll open the conversation out to you. Um, too much to talk about, so we'll have to think about how we can focus this, because it's huge, isn't it? Can I pick up... I'm going to just sort of throw some ideas and hope that all three speakers will um, respond. Just off, off the cuff, as you like. Can I pick up on that idea of agency, actually, first of all? Because, well, let me say, first of all, what's come through, I think, is that it isn't a sort of sequential thing. You know, we had the exhibition, then we had the radio, then we had television, then we had new media at all. You know, all these things are still with us. Um, okay, they're expanding and there's new things coming along all the time, but as, as Deborah said right at the beginning, people still go to exhibitions. So we're in a multiple, a world of multiple media, all of them telling us how to um, create our wonderful homes, our ideal homes, and to find our individuality or whatever through that. So that's an interesting picture to start with, in this multiplicity of, of media coexisting. But uh, the question I was going to ask you all is, is, where is the agency? And you've talked a little bit about that already, but let, let's expand it out. I mean, on the one hand, we have the Daily Mail, then we have the BBC and the Council of Industrial Design, and now we have Google. I mean, they're, 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 these, there are big things going on behind these um, bodies of advice, bodies of information about what we should be doing with our home. How, how strong is that agency, and how, how, how important is it to think about agencies in terms of the production of the media as opposed to the consumption of it, I suppose? Is that something you could say anything about? I mean, how important is the, is the fact that Daily Mail did the, ex did the ideal home? Well, is it irrelevant in no, the end? No, I, I, I don't think it's irrelevant at all. I mean, I, th I, think, I think the thing that's really interesting in um, the 20th century with the ideal home exhibition is the way in which it mirrors the rise of home ownership. So, and I was struck very much by... Theresa May's disastrous speech, not by the disaster actually, but by her talking about the British dream of home ownership, which, you know, we're now in a period where home ownership is in decline. So we're at this really interesting moment where home ownership peaked. And, you know, I, I have teenage children. Will they be home? Made, uh, um, will, will they own their own homes? It's looking increasingly unlikely. So I think. One of the things that the Daily Mail does, still does very well, is appeals to people's aspirations and it appeals to this very aspirational middle class and people who've shifted up the social scale and it's doing that from when it starts in 1896 and the exhibition absolutely mirrors those dreams and desires. Yeah. But what it, what it happens is that there's this kind of tension and what the mayor is still very smart about, still does really effectively, although the exhibition is no longer anything to do with the mail, but is, is it's very good at pitching to its readers slightly above the social scale to where they actually are. Mm -hmm. So pitching absolutely to those aspirations. And I think, I think it's really, you know, the exhibition's a commercial proposition that the, where people are coming in and and buying space, but certainly there there was a a conscious idea to attract a certain kind of exhibitor. The design council did 
exhibit there. The Council of Industrial Design did exhibit there, but never particularly successfully. But the, you know, the successes were the more commercial, celebratory, kind of middle market things, I would say. But those, those official bodies did try and get in there and, and do that. So the, there are some interesting kind of tensions mm, yes. within it, I guess, about... about and, I, and I think one of the things I'm always really interested in in accounts of exhibitions is, is you know, you can read an ex exhibition as a kind of hegemonic process, a bit top-down, mm -hmm. but if, when you start looking at how the public behave and react, and I think it also links to you talking about blogging, is that you can't control the agency, you know, that things can be subverted and appropriated. You can, you can walk around an exhibition in a, in a direction that wasn't intended. Mm -hmm. You can make something of it for yourself. Yeah. So I think that's, that to me is the thing yeah. that's really interesting. It's a liberating bit. And yeah. that's the same as your, your granny's television. She's subverting yeah. the, the good design message. Would you want to say a little bit about the sort of the agency of the council? You did talk about it quite extensively, but mm. in terms of, I suppose it's that thing: are we are we are we just being told, and, mm. and we're you know going off and imitating it, mm. or are we are we free individuals creating our homes? That's the big question, mm. I suppose. Yeah, and I think what was so interesting about the collaboration between the Council of Industrial Design and the BBC is that it happens at this specific moment after World War Two. There's shortages, uh, rationing, uh, people are living in really quite quite bad conditions, but, but the BBC and the Council of Industrial Design, two highly prescriptive, didactic bodies coming together to say, well, actually, we, we feel we can improve people's mm -hmm. lives, and they, they're not particularly interested in agency. They think there's a sort of one-size-fits-all approach to design um, and culture in the form of the two bodies, and they come together to sort of, and as I think Deborah picked up on, there was a really moral, um, that good and bad do have the connotations of good design equaling being a good person and bad design equaling something sort of a bit dubious, um, and I suppose what's quite interesting about what happens and I think also happened in academic studies is we've we realized that this highly prescriptive model was very very problematic because it was incredibly driven by a specific um, group of people so mainly men designers coming at it from a highly middle class perspective but there was a kind of if the British dream of the 40s and 50s it was that you could have a one-size-fits-all approach and then the 60s and 70s and as consumerism sort of becomes more rampant I think the idea of the individual comes in and the idea of end agency actually gets capitalized upon so now we have this illusion of agency but I think as Deborah was bringing out it's all a bit of an illusion because there's still these tastemakers behind the scenes. They just want to make us feel like we're mm -hmm. participating in it as these active consumers. Mm. I think that's exactly the point. Could, could mm. you say a little bit more about that for us? I think it's, it's yes. important. Um, uh, certainly sure. when we're looking at the period when home ownership, once again through Margaret Thatcher's era, um, arose to become a, a very important dream. Um, You've got those television programs that emerge uh, on tips about how to how how to sort of improve the, your your own home and so on, um, but then IKEA comes along, and and what uh, other people have said, such as Deborah Phillips and others, is that um, you have this moment of democratisation of interior design because we can all uh, kind of afford it, um, and so that 
that seems to be a moment when we're entering um, into the possibilities of being able to to mould our own ideas about creativity and so on. Um, but it's also the very moment when interior designers emerge um, a as a really powerful force um, as tastemakers to replace, as it were, the design council, the council of industrial design, uh, as the, the moral arbiters of what is appropriate and inappropriate. And I think it's, it's very telling that these tastemakers, these professional tastemakers, have taken over the blogs. Mm -hmm. I mean, blogs are actually well used by these guys. And it's, it's also no accident that, that Pinterest, I mean, how many people have, um, have got accounts with Pinterest? 72 million across the world uh, in 2015. Um, and the majority of them, I think about 70, 80% are female. So it's very, very much a feminized um, kind of force. And, and it's very much a form of curation. So that the sense of agency on behalf of us, the public, is, is actually fairly limited. Well, what we're doing is, is regurgitating, uh, reusing, uh, curating existing images that have been placed there, nevertheless, by, by experts. And if you move to the um, period of the smart, you know, the, the home of the future, the, the smart home, uh, the period of the Internet of Things, um, this is very much overtaken by the, the big multinational corporations, the giants. And our relationship to them is so problematic that the agency is very much within their hands, and, and I think that that's rather worrying. So I, I have a very ambivalent set of feelings about agency in this digital age myself. Yeah. Now that, that's, um, we'll, we'll, we'll hold on that question of agency and who's controlling who, and throw that open in a minute. But I just wanted to raise one more issue, which you've just raised yourself, which is the um, issue of gender, and we're four women sitting here <laughs> yeah. talking about homes in a very sort of stereotypical image of what home might be in gender terms. And, um, you know, the, the, has it changed? You're just saying not, with Pinterest being predominantly found. I'm, I'm quite yes. surprised by that. I mean, I, I'm t I've, I initially thought, well, this is just another, this, this blogging and Pinterest development is, an, is, is really an expression of neoliberal values. So that was my feeling initially, which is quite harsh, actually, um, going back to using Bourdieu and cultural intermediaries and, and the idea of taste-making as almost kind of like a form of, um, a, a form of, of, of symbolic violence. Um, because you then have to be very careful because we are actually in the age of um, interactive media. And so what are these people doing on Pinterest? So I think we have to be very careful about, about going too far one way and suggesting that it's still very much controlled by, by experts because maybe a breakthrough is gradually happening um, through Instagram and Pinterest and we are actually mixing and matching in eclectic styles which are far more personalized. So there is a personalization, um, but it's almost like a kind of domestic selfie we are trying to express our own inner selves through interior design. And the experts love us for doing that. They love that. So, so I, I feel a bit ambivalent about this. 
myself. Is there anything you want to add about gender? I mean, it's such a sort of huge subject. Oh, I, gu I guess I'm not so pessimistic. I guess mm -hmm. I'm a bit more optimistic because I think one of the things that's quite interesting is with blogging and with Instagram, which is very much about posting your own photos, not reposting yes, mm -hmm. other mm -hmm. people's mm -hmm. photos. I think what you've got is you've got this this kind of you know, chipping away at some of the ideas of the expert and certainly the professional journalist. And, I, and you know, it's becoming incredibly hard. You know, lots of, mag I think Glamour magazine is about to go online only, isn't it? The print, print media seems to be in crisis. How do you make a living out of journalism now where everyone is a kind of citizen yeah. journalist? So I'm quite interested in some of some of the ways in which you've got those kind of shifting barriers. But I think you've also got interesting things happening around celebrity. I would say that lots of the things that people assume are a post-war phenomenon are absolutely there in the interwar media as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would say that because I work on the interwar period. But I think one of the things that's really interesting is, is around... Um, you know how how do you how do you kind of monetize this expertise and who becomes the expert? So one of the ways the Ideal Home Show operates now is it has celebrity ambassadors, and you know Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen is there as an ambassador every year. I'm I'm dying to see his new TV series, Lawrence of Suburbia. He's been tweeting about <laughs> Sky. I don't have a Sky subscription, but. But, you know, you then get the reality TV stars tipping over. So I'm quite interested in the blurred boundaries between the amateur and the professional and maybe see some of that as a kind of democratisation. So I'm maybe not as quite as pessimistic as, as you are about yeah. it. Yeah, that's a, that's a good... Good debate, that one. Um, I think we should throw this open, actually, because I, th I can see people burning with questions. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's do it. Hi, I'm Felicity Hall. I'm a recent graduate of the History of Design at the RCM V&A. Um, I'm interested in DIY, and to me, there's a, a linking strand between what three of you are talking about, about how people built their own things. And I think one of the, the agency in terms of building things, hacking, Ikea hacks is an interesting social media phenomenon. And I wondered what you thought about DIY crafting, making your own within the context of this, but also how that cuts against technology, coding, and big technological corporations creating things that don't have any mechanical parts. Two questions there. Mm. Who'd like to pick up? Well, um, the DIY. Oh. Let's start with DIY. Yeah, would you like to start? Because um, you had that image of... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so one of the other places I've looked at beyond the sort of um, more high-end uh, magazines like Ideal Home and Good Housekeeping is I've looked at um, DIY magazines, and it's quite interesting because the DIY magazines are more prevalent from the 60s onwards um, rather than magazines like Good Housekeeping that go much, much further back. And yet yeah, the examples of do-it-yourself uh, television furniture is that's where I've found most most of these examples and a, and a lot of the time they are they, there is a gender interest there because it's often about you the husband and the wife getting together to have this shared 
activity. So it's not so much about them positioning it as agency over your television set or your home, but a sort of sense of sharedness between you and your wife. Um, but it's always aimed, aimed at a man, or there'll just be an odd article which is aimed at just a woman. So it'll be like, this is so simple, even a woman can do it. It, it genuinely says that. Um, so I think, it, as far as what I'm interested in DIY is, I think it does, it's this, and I was going to say perhaps about the gender point, is that DIY is where men get their point of interest in, into the home because it's their kind of sphere, it's the man shed, it's, it's the space in which they can be interested in building a form of, of domesticity. So I suppose it's about that dual agency and how it's experienced differently within the home between the man and the woman and perhaps with the example of television DIY, it's a kind of point at which somehow men and women can meet to build these objects because they're united in their love of television or something along those lines. Yeah, I, I would... Um I would probably reiterate what Deborah has said about the democratizing influences, um, which are quite evident when you look at the kind of hack phenomenon in relation to, for example, IKEA. And uh, so um, just today um, on the radio, there was a discussion about um, the responses to this desire to hack, which is, um, you know, you have a kitchen. Um, you just want to put doors on the um, the counters rather than getting the whole countertop and everything as well. So you just want the doors. And one particular firm has now specialised in providing um, a design of doors that you stick onto your kitchen unit, um, which is a kitchen unit that you, you buy from IKEA. So there are firms out there that are now specialising in being able to provide designs for the IKEA as a kind of a hack. Now, IKEA have since picked that up as well, and they provide hacks too. So they're always kind of like a step behind. So you've got this democratizing influence, which is brilliant, um, so that we end up designing our own homes, but we can all afford it because we're, we're buying stuff from a very cheap company. Um, and, and we can recreate um, the images within the home. But there's still a problem there, which is that there is this kind of um, reflection of the self through, through the home, which is almost hysterical. That it's great to do all of this stuff, and yes, you can hack, and now IKEA are actually into their own kind of hacking. <laughs> but um, it's this personalization of the home, which is now so obsessive, and we're talking about an era of austerity. So there's something strange going on, I think, mm -hmm. in this period of the 21st century, um, where there's a battle between large multinational corporations. Um, IKEA has won the battle hands down. But, <laughs> but nevertheless, what is this desire to express yourself through your home when so many people are not going to be able to own their own homes within the future? So that there's, there's something insidious there that... I can't help thinking about and worrying about, I guess. Um, I mean, I would, I would add a historical point, actually, to this, that one of the things I think we've got to be careful about is to separate out the media representations from the lived experience. So the media discourse is often a highly gendered discourse around DIY crafting activities, and certainly the work that I've just finished on the interwar period, where I've been writing about interwar 
home ownership, focusing on the design and decoration of the home, that, that I think some of the eyewitness accounts I've read run quite counter to some of the media discourse. So, you know, diary accounts of men taking huge investments in their home, couples doing things together, women doing activities like painting, um, and, you know, that, that were um, some of the decorating, some of the painting in the 30s, particularly this group of lower middle homeowners who are maybe living on quite a restricted um, income, and particularly after the Depression in the 30s. So I think we've got to be really, really careful about separate, you know, not assuming that the kind of advice manuals and the magazines are the lived reality. And I think that, I mean, that work is, is hard oh, to do. Absolutely. I think that's at the core of this evening, really, yeah. isn't it, to separate those out? Hello. So I was wondering, you were talking about how, like, customised furniture or purchasing your own furniture and IKEA and DIY enables you to become more autonomous in terms of designing your home. But I would personally say that with the increasing social media, um, people are less autonomous than ever because they're always thinking about how um, their lives are perceived on social media. Therefore, their designs and their choices and their preferences are guided by um, ultimately what the public would think of their uh, snaps on social media. So um, would you say that they're actually more autonomous or less autonomous as a result of this kind of conflict between um, choosing what you want and how it's going to look online? So it's still a question of asserting social status or aspiration rather yeah. than just personalizing. <coughs> what do people think about that? Well, we were talking earlier, mm. Emily and I, about the fact that this kind of like Swedish style is, is, so, is so prominent, so there's a kind of tension between individualization and eclecticism and mix and match um, and homogenization. And the Swedish style is very, very prominent, isn't it? Did you want to say anything? Well, I suppose it's, we, yeah, we were discussing how um, the home, in many ways, we're told that there's more and more options. And I think a lot of the examples you showed, it was sort of this idea like your home will be unique, but at the same time, you're purchasing that from somewhere else. So that the, the idea of uniqueness is, is, is a lie, I suppose, because if you're buying it from somewhere else, um, then how, how unique how unique can it be? But I think it's the sort of ubiquity of the interiors that we see um, around us. And it's, it's interesting, I think, from my perspective, that a lot of the 1950s and 60s furniture, especially the Scandinavian design that IKEA has now championed, is coming back in fashion. So we're sort of seeing um, a fetishization of stuff like old radios. You might go into a bar or a cafe and you see them and it's kind of cool and trendy to have that and you might place an out-of-date piece of technology in your home or the fact that Roberts have released the revival radio that's actually DAB. So yes, yes. it's kind of the way in which the trends from the 50s and 60s that was quite prescriptive has now reworked itself into the, the modern vernacular. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there and it's very interesting. Your, your point about, um, about about going on Facebook and, and showing these images and it's all about a new kind of representation of the self. I think it's also a very, very important point, yeah. I think it is. Hi, uh, my question is about the different 
components that constitute a home. So, so far we've heard about like the TV in the living room, uh, briefly about the kitchen. I was just wondering if we could talk a little bit, bit about other elements of the home which might not, which maybe are like extensions to it. For example, the garage and car would maybe be more important in America than here. But I was just thinking like with um, cars as like signaling um, social status, they're one of like the big um, in popular culture anyway. Would you say that perhaps there are conflicting tendencies about like personalization for some aspects of the home and homogenization for other aspects of the home? So with cars, you've got standard ones, Lamborghini, BMW, Mercedes, whatever. Then with like um, walk-in closets in another part of the home, you've got names and brands, Birkins. How, how do you see that kind of like playing out? Is there, are there like mini sites of domesticity within the, the site of the home? And um, just thinking about gender a bit, um, it's a bit separate question. Like with some people who like to compartmentalize their homes, so they've got kids in one room, man cave in the other. Just thinking, it's quite interesting about how like couples like negotiate that. I was wondering if academics are interested in that at all because it's agency in a different form, you know, between the man and the wife. And just your thoughts on that, please. There's been work done on the gendering of the 19th century home, hasn't yeah. there? And then the yeah. masculine office and the female parlour. Um, I suppose that, the open yeah. plan home was attempting to break, to break down, down some of those boundaries, but we still see them quite, quite reinforced and people sort of put them back in, in place in quite interesting, mm -hmm. interesting ways. Um, I think the introduction of um, mobile gadgets in the home is, is an interesting phenomenon as well. Um, that you know you've now got your tablets and 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 so on and moving between mm -hmm. rooms is now uh, turning the home into a slightly more kind of porous place so but I agree that one of the key features of open plan living was the idea that uh, the kitchen was was suddenly on display and so therefore the work of the housewife mm -hmm. was permanently on display and and made the kitchen um, not just a labour of love, but a damn nuisance because you had to keep it tidy all the time. <laughs> so some interesting um, issues emerged. But I was quite interested in what you said about the garage as well. And I haven't actually thought about garages very much, but it's in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the garden is very important. And and in Australia as well. Um, you know, your quarter-acre block and the white picket fence and so on, very deeply ingrained within the desire for home. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one way of thinking about this as well is through domestic practices. So if we think about mealtimes and we, we think oh, yes. about the, 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 the space of cookery, so the interior's fashion is to have this big open-plan kitchen with everything on display but it's not necessarily a kitchen where family meals are taken at the same time mm -hmm. it's often a space where things are reheated and then taken to other parts of the, of the house and not eaten in the kitchen so you've got that kind of you've, you've got those kind of tensions with the kitchen and those kind of breaking downs mm -hmm. in, in social practices or social practice sliding and I think yeah. your point as well about mobile technology as well that you know, we, we, we had that, that weird phase with kitchen computers and home offices. And now, because of smartphones and tablets, all those, those spatial boundaries in the home have become really collapsed. And even television. I mean, most, most young people don't watch 
television as it's broadcast mm. and they don't watch it on televisions, they watch it on mobile yeah. devices. Mm. And, so, and so the, the you know the, the, the you know the, if you think of the TV as the focus in the sitting room taking over from the fireplace as the focal point, there are very few that's the holy grail isn't it for broadcasters that they're trying to find those kind of big events that people will watch in live time together mm. and, and with streaming services and the way watching is, is changing. So, so I think you know, there are interesting things about the ways in which the social practices are changing mm. the spaces of, of the home. Mm. Just, just very briefly, there's also, as you were talking, I was just thinking about children's bedrooms yeah. and the saturation of bedrooms with uh, media yeah. technology, which mm. is now shrinking, of course, but uh, these are centrally heated rooms now, mm. and they are places where children escape to, and yet they can be in contact with people all over the world through social media. So that bedroom is now a really mm. um, uh, profound space, a, a quite um, mm. important shift that's taken place since um, the post-war period, yeah. Hello. I think uh, the whole problem now is globalization in a way that uh, in the 50s we had a television that was an alien at home and now we have different aliens because every member of the family can have a computer, a laptop or a telephone um, and that uh, that makes you uh, not to have like a common home because like I would like to have an espresso at my home, at my kitchen, and have coffee in different ways. Or so many things that uh, are changing the roles of everyone. And uh, that globalization is, uh, is changing us, uh, really, in many different ways. And I don't think, I'm an architect, and I don't think there is a, a design or a specific uh, way like it used to be. It's, uh, you can pick everything from everywhere and you can uh, uh, make your home with little pieces. And everyone has uh, uh, the potential to uh, make uh, his room different in many ways. And that, uh, that's the sign of our era. I think what I was just thinking about, and that's made me also think about with the children's bedroom and the media within it, is this kind of question of moral panic that happens as new technologies, especially media technologies, have developed. So the television was going to be the thing that would destroy the home, and now we sort of are a bit sad that television isn't the centrepiece, and we don't sit and view, and everyone's off in their own with left to their own devices and and so there's that kind of sense that we've lost something of a more traditional time when we had broadcast television and everything was fairly regulated so I think as all new technologies are brought into our domestic lives we feel a sense of discomfort and I think that w word alien is quite interesting because often t media objects are personified as these kind of invaders as these guests that we have to welcome in and and each um, each one is seen to replace an older form and so, yeah, I think that, that question is, is, is really, really interesting, how we negotiate that as, as technology develops. 
And, and yet, going alongside that is the taste for the analogue. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we think of the revival of vinyl, and mm-hmm. it's not just mm-hmm. it's not just um, baby boomers recalling their youth. It's actually young people mm-hmm. getting into vinyl, getting getting into manual cameras. Yeah. We've got Polaroid coming mm-hmm. back into production. So, alongside the the technological is also this this sense of of wanting to get back to the material and the actual and the the physical. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a real craze amongst teenage kids for disposable cameras with Mm -hmm. real Mm -hmm. film at the moment when, you know, they all have a smartphone with them with with a a photo in an instant. So I think there's something really interesting Mm -hmm. Going on, that that you know, alongside that, we've got this 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 other side, haven't we? Which is a bit like people still going to exhibitions. There's a sort of yeah, mm-hmm. a parallel yeah. there, isn't there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, your comment about the Polaroid cameras just triggered a thought about how each of one of you have spoke about experiences. So how someone experiences the exhibition, how we experience TV, and now how we're experiencing other people's lives. Um, and I guess my question is, if this movement keeps happening, do you think that it, we are designing for behavioural change? Is that the, the notion that we're heading for? Or is it a return into seeking something more haptic and tactile? Mm. Mm. Good question. Um, well, wh- one of the areas that I've just recently kind of started to get my head around is um, the... Um, approach referred to as media archaeology, which insists that the distinctions between old and new media are kind of, um, they're not arbitrary, because of course we know that technologically we've got analog and digital, but um, they, within them, have this sense of obsolescence built into the notion of old and new. And I think you're right that this idea of resistance against um, the new and moving back towards the old is, is a really important point because um, as some scholars within the field have suggested um, it's, it's in the interests of the multinational corporations to make out that new media is the future and that there's no looking back um, and that old media is, is kind of like a false construction for us to move away from objects which clearly still work perfectly well, and yet we're throwing them away on rubbish heaps across the world, which are massive, um, you know, um, wastes um, filled with old television sets and old this and old that. And there's, there's a really serious environmental and ecological issue that underpins all of this. Because this democratization of culture um, through IKEA and then through Pinterest and Instagram and so on, it certainly isn't leading to a more ecological or environmentally um, uh, responsible future. Um, it's a, it's still a throwaway culture that we are engaging with and and celebrating. So mm-hmm. that was just <coughs> one thought. <laughs> yeah, just I mean, this is only a very small point, but it's. Um old televisions have asbestos in them, so the yes. National Science and Media Museum had to move their collection recently, and they had to get men in, in you know, full protective gear to actually be able to safely move these television sets. So I think that kind of, yeah, definitely the environmental cost of these technologies is, is, is huge. But 
how many of us live in homes where everything is bought new every decade that looks the same? You know, on your granny's television mm. are things that are repositories of meaning that mm. have been given to her that she's acquired. So again, I, I think I would, I think, I think I would always caution for the kind of lived experience as well. But I, I totally agree with your point about, I mean, I was struck recently where we're moving house at the moment. We've been in our house for 10 years and we had a trip to the dump and I was truly shocked at the stuff that was being chucked away because I'd, I would always send things to charity shops and, you know, try and recycle mm. and upcycle. And, you know, there is all human life there in the, the dump and then you know there's that other tension isn't there I remember when I was teaching on design courses and all the excitement around 3D printers and rapid prototyping and I just thought it's just going to be more rubbish it's just <laughs> going to be another yeah, yeah. way to make stuff that will be discarded and go mm. into landfill but quicker. it brings back the question of agency I suppose because a lot of goods have obsolescence built into them yeah. they the manufacturers themselves are making it so it has a short time yeah. span so we as consumers feel this guilt and this huge pressure mm. of recycling and trying to be but mm. yet the objects we're given are, are flawed and built to break so there are some interesting movements aren't there around um, fixed parts around mm. mending cafes uh, the, yes. the whole issues mm -hmm. around yes. upcycling, and I yes. think that's yeah. really, really, you know, that's a very interesting kind of counter movement, and that's also, I think, where social media mm -hmm. can become truly democratizing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. powerful because often yeah. Yeah, those often those things have all been spread through social yeah. media means mm -hmm. and have been very much a kind yeah. of grassroots yeah. movement. Yes. Mm -hmm. We've got time, I'm afraid, for one more quick question because time has run out on us. It's, it's been really interesting to see uh, and to hear all your ideas. I'm an architect and I'm really interested. I think we've tiptoed quite a bit around the idea of privacy mm -hmm. and how media is shifting uh, privacy in the exteriority and interiority of the home. And I, I would like to hear your ideas on if there is any um, opening or any shift in the idea of, of interior and exteriority and if that has through media, um, any kind of architectural material uh, opportunities? Well, the thing that strikes me about um, the, you know, the home of the future, such as it is, as we imagine it, is that the multinational corporations who have introduced um, these voice-activated information <laughs> systems and so on um, have also uh, generated a massive debate, a moral panic, I think, around how much we are being watched by the smart technology mm. itself. So smart televisions like Samsung and that lot, um, we realized that they were able to listen in to what we were saying and there was a report by Witch about this. Um, and I wrote about this in, in the last chapter of my book about some of the kinds of issues surrounding privacy. So on the one hand, you've got a desire to protect yourself from these large multinational corporations because they are curating information about us to then feed back adverts and so on within a recommendation culture to us. But on the other hand, the concept of privacy is a bourgeois concept. And so security around the home through all of this smart technology is very much there um, to protect these large luxury homes that most of us can never afford, at least not me on my uh, university <laughs> salary. <laughs> so. So there's a tension there because we would all like to go back to the collective, 
you know, the idea of a kind of collective community spirit and so on, and gated communities are a real no-no amongst most of us probably here. Um, and so th there's a kind of tension there, I guess, is what I'm saying, yeah. I, I, I wanted to answer that a different way because the fastest growing type of household is single person mm. household. Mm. And often the idea of the ideal home is predicated on this idea of a, a perfect family of you know, two adults, two kids, and we know now that household shapes are really changing and that um, you have a um, growing number of people who, who, who live on their own for various reasons. They either never have a partner, we've got divorce, um, other, other kinds of structures, but then we've also got the return of multi-generational homes, adult children coming back to live at home. My dilemma at the moment with two, a 20-year-old and 16-year-old <laughs> about to buy a house is do we downsize or do we you know, keep a large family home with the idea that probably our adult children will be back living with us? So I think this is, this is certainly something I've, I've seen the Ideal Home Exhibition try and tackle is how can we design homes that account for these shifts in different kinds of household structures, so a house that could adapt over time to different generations. And then I guess the other thing I would throw into the mix is, you know, we haven't talked very much about homelessness. We haven't mm -hmm. talked much about renting. If you're under 35, you can no longer get benefits that support you living in by yourself. If you don't have children, you have to live in a shared house with other people. So this is going to, you know, the, the, this, is, this generation of renters living in a room in a shared house, this is going to have profound effects on, on domestic design because this is a massive generational shift, I think. I also, an ageing society and, yeah, you know, um, the problems of living in a house with a staircase mm. presents all sorts of difficulties as well. And we, we just haven't really tackled that. No. We've just sort of, you know, the, it's the tip of the iceberg and we're, and we're still, we're, we're still um, not, not addressing it centrally about the fact that we're all in an ageing kind of society. Well, on that cheery note... Oh, <laughs> um, can, I, can I thank the speakers one more time? Deborah, Deborah and Emily. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.